once again. Good evening, everybody. Thanks, Stuart and the team. Um, if you're new with us, uh, you've joined us sort of in the beginning of our series uh, in Romans. Um, it's going to be quite a long series. We, we, we're doing 17 weeks. Eventually, we would have done 17 weeks in the book of Romans. This is week number three. Uh, so if you've missed the other two, they're on YouTube. You can go and listen to them. Um, but we're really excited about this because um, the book of Romans essentially is a complete unpacking uh, in, of the gospel and, and the telling of the story of Jesus and the good news of Jesus. And uh, we've been journeying quite a bit, and, and I just want to say, way of recap and way of introduction this evening, the, f- the first week what we really did was have a look at Paul's introduction to the Romans about what he felt was essential to the gospel, what were some essential core elements in the gospel, and if you messed them up, you were not preaching the gospel. So we looked at that the first week. Last week, what we looked at was we looked at Paul's attitude towards the gospel, and because of what the gospel did in his life, because of what Jesus did in his life, he was compelled to preach the gospel, he was eager to preach the gospel, and he was unashamed of the gospel. This week marks a bit of a a turn in the book because we move away, we move into the very first major section outside of the introduction to Romans. And Paul establishes something incredibly important in this section. And let me just say this, as a preacher of the Word of God, it's really exciting to get to preach God's Word, but sometimes there are those messages that you just know are not going to win you any popularity contests. This is one of them. And I just want to say to you, it is not always light. It's, there are times where it's heavy to preach God. And I just, I just feel that tonight. And so I just want to say to you, like, I'm unashamed of the Word of God, but it is a heavy thing to preach tonight. But before we get into that, I just want to say, I will ask if any of you have ever been in the place where you've had to decide between the innocence of somebody and the guilt of somebody. Have you ever been in a situation where you've had to decide between the two? I'm, I'm the only one, right? Okay, cool. All right. As a parent, I'm there every day, all right, all the time. Abby will walk in crying, right? No, David pushed me. And then David will walk in. I would have shouted from the lounge, David, come here, right? Because immediately I think he's guilty, and he comes in, and he's full of sand from head to toe, and he's crying. What happened? No, Abby poured sand on my head. What happened first? Did she pour sand on your head, and then you pushed her? Or did, you, you know, did she? What's all, yeah. Which way did it happen, basically? It's as confusing as that. And they'll both stand and they'll both blame each other, and I've got to pray and ask for the wisdom of Solomon, except there is no baby to threaten to chop in half, right? <laughs> except for both of them. I just find it really difficult, and that's just a light-hearted thing, but I really take my fathering very seriously, and I want to be a good judge of what's right and what's wrong, because I want to dish out the appropriate punishment, but I found, and you'll find if you've been there, you'll know, it's really not that easy to establish somebody's guilt, especially when you know you're guilty of the stuff yourself. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does in this section of Romans. He begins to unpack and to lay out before the Romans and before all of us the guilt of mankind, and he does that systematically. And really from from chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, he's going to argue for, like an advocate argues for something, like a a prosecuting attorney. He's going to lay out the charges against us and say you're guilty. Really, from verses 18 to 32, that's what he does. 
And this, this whole section of our guilt really goes all the way to chapter 2, verse 29, but there he deals with different groups of people and how they think about themselves. But essentially, verses 18 to 32, he says, applies to all mankind. So it's true for all humanity. And really what he gets down to is this, that if you fall into any of the things listed, and there's quite a lot, and I'll gracefully show you how you all fit into that list. He says, if you haven't repented, if you haven't confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're not living for him in obedience, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, you are not safe from the terrifying coming wrath of God. That's what he says. So we're gonna read together and unpack what Paul says. That's what he says, verse 18 to 32. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natu exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, their men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree, they also, those who do such things, and they know that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. God, I just want to pray for your grace tonight as we unpack your word. Lord, I pray for the Holy Spirit that you'd bring a tenderness to our hearts. Lord, that you'd help us to see that this is your word and your will and that there's nothing better than being right with you through Jesus. Lord, I pray for conviction, not condemnation. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that your love would be seen as well as your righteousness. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as Paul begins to unpack, and as he starts the section in Romans, what he essentially does is he starts to lay out the reasons for the coming wrath of God. That's what he starts to do. And he highlights what the biggest problem is for us nowadays as we live on planet Earth, back then and now, and highlights for us what our biggest concern should be. 
Our biggest problem and our biggest concern is not world hunger. It's not poverty. It's not social injustice. It's not racism. It's not world war. Those are all terrible things. We hate them. They're bad, and Christians need to be getting involved with them to bring light. But the biggest issue we face is the depravity of our hearts and the sin of our hearts that separates us from a holy and righteous God. And the biggest problem we have is the coming wrath of God. That's the biggest problem we have. Everything else is a symptom of our broken hearts. That's why Paul says, I'm so eager to go preach the gospel, not because of only what it's done in his life, but because he knows what it's going to do in the lives of people who so desperately need to hear the gospel. That's why he says the gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news, because it's going to save people from the wrath of God. If it wasn't going to save you from something so terrible, it wouldn't be such good news. In a sense, Paul goes for the jugular vein. He says you need the gospel not because you're leading an unsuccessful life. You need the gospel not because you're lonely and you want to find the right spouse. You don't need the gospel because life isn't turning out the way you want it to be. You don't need the gospel for any other reason except for this. The wrath of God is being poured out, is being stored up, and is going to be poured out on those who don't accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, I realize to say that is not really an in vogue thing nowadays. And that to say the wrath of God is not really appreciated by our culture is to to understate the obvious. I think even many who claim to be Christians object to or even minimize the mention of hell and the wrath of God. There's this idea called universalism. A lot of Christians are brought into, we all go to heaven. Rob Bell's one of those guys, love wins. You try and pin people down on what they actually believe and speak about the scriptures that unpack the wrath of God and his hate for sin. You can't really nail them down to what they believe. It's just this wishy-washy, we're all going to heaven. Many Christians also say they believe in the wrath of God. But when you press them on it, you find out the only reason why they believe it is because they can't get away from the fact that it's written in Scripture, but they don't believe it because they're actually quite embarrassed by it. We spoke about that last week a little bit. I've even heard Christians say, to my face, They've said this, I believe in a God of love, not a God of wrath. To that I say, I believe in both. My God is a righteous God, and He's a loving God. Modern, seeker-sensitive churches win hundreds of people to their Sunday services, and they draw huge crowds and make a huge amount of money by never mentioning sin and judgment. And I just want to say this is one of the ways you can tell where a church is at, not only by what they say, but what they don't say. Bad preaching and bad teaching is not just teaching bad stuff, it's also not teaching good stuff. If they focus more on the positive aspects of the gospel, which are there, God loves you, there's abundant life in Jesus, he brings peace and joy and love and the fruit of the spirit, he will help you with your problems and he wants you to be happy. They'll preach this and very seldom, in fact almost never, is there any teaching about the coming wrath of God and the seriousness of our sin before him. One theologian said this, that Christians have bought into this gospel that has a God without wrath, who brought men without sin into a kingdom with no judgment through the ministry of Christ without a cross. That's what a lot of people have bought into. Modern critics would say of Paul, just you're not really going to win many converts, Paul. 
by preaching this gospel that you preach. Lighten up, soften the blow. Maybe you can talk about this a little bit later. You can touch on the subject, but when you want to win people, don't mention God's wrath. And when I come to the scriptures, I have to see that Paul's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and inspired by the Spirit, he went there and he penned this thing for us in Romans 18, 118. See, if we're going to understand our necess- well, the necessity and our need for God's love, we have to understand what that love is saving us from. And then you deeply appreciate it. The scripture in the New Testament says, he is saved from much, loves much. And a deep appreciation for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fact that the king has come, comes from an understanding of how deeply depraved I was and how in danger I was of the fires of hell. But if we're not ungodly, if we're not unrighteous, if God's just going to let everybody go to heaven no matter what, then the cross was unnecessary. That price was unnecessary and really just extravagantly silly. What Paul does is he begins to outline what generates and provokes the wrath of God. And he lists them the way that he does, one, like I said, to establish our guilt, and two, to show the progression of sin. It starts somewhere, and there's a slippery slope, and it ends up in deep depravity. Verses 1 to, uh, 18 to 32, Paul essentially mentions three things. There's more, and come to Howard's thing tomorrow night. He's going to unpack more of that. Come. This, this, is, this is a Ziploc version of what's going to happen tomorrow night. But I picked out three things that Paul mentions that provoke the anger and the wrath of God. And they're all linked to one another. The one leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. And the first one he says is this. The suppression of truth makes God angry. That's what he says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So what truth are humans guilty of suppressing? The fact that God exists, that he is there, that he's really there. That's what we're guilty of suppressing. And it's been suppressed for generations and centuries it's been suppressed. There is no God, they say. God is dead, Nietzsche says. And I think the reason why we suppress this truth and why it's been suppressed from the beginning of time is obvious, or at least I think it's obvious. I know that there are all sorts of intellectual arguments that people put forward as to why God doesn't exist. But let me tell you this, at the heart of the reason why we suppress this truth is because we don't want there to be a God. Because if there's a God, I must submit to him and I want to be the Lord of my own life and live my own way. No God, I'm God. If there's a God, I need to submit. And I want my conscience to be clear. I want to lie to myself about how I can live my life and the things that I can choose to do. God cramps my style. And so the word um, suppress literally means to hold down. And so men, we, we hold down, women, we hold down this truth so we can pursue our sins. Whether it's Darwin's theory of evolution denying God as the sovereign creator or philosophy speculating that you can't really actually know God even if he was there, or whether it's psychology telling us that we're not really responsible for our own problems, either the issues we have are a result of society and the homes that we grew up in. There's no real inherent sin in you. There's a whole bunch more, and I'm not saying that there aren't people who are Christians who are psychologists. Please don't write emails to me about that, right? 
There are so many different ways that we push the truth of God down and we suppress the truth of God so that we can be our own Lord. But here's why this clause, so that they're without excuse, is put in there, because we really are without excuse. There's no reason why you suppress the truth of God and realize that he is there, because God said he's made it clear. He's made it clear. You can't walk away from that. He's put warning signs all over the place, flashing lights all over the place. He said, hey, look, I exist. You need to start looking for me. I'm here. He's made it abundantly clear that he is there. We all know this. And if you drive off the cliff ignoring the signs, it's your fault. The suppression of the truth about God and his existence is one of the things that provokes and stirs up the wrath of God. It's also one of the first steps in an ever-spiraling downward spiral towards eternal death. When we're able to convince ourselves that God doesn't exist, the next step is to replace God, which is a second thing Paul mentions that really angers and stirs up and provokes the wrath of God. It says this, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. There's this deep unappreciation for who God is. And we refuse to worship him because we believe he's not there. We've convinced ourselves that he's not by suppressing the truth. And then we replace God with idols. It says this, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, birds, animals, and reptiles. The rejection of truth will always lead to, the rejection of truth about the existence of God will always lead to idol worship in our lives. And the reason for that is we are created to worship. And some of you might be thinking idol worship doesn't really exist nowadays. Oh, yes, it does. It exists. We might not have shrines and pillars and all sorts of ornaments put up in our home where we bow down. They might not be made to look like man. They might not be made to look like birds and reptiles. But we certainly worship stuff. Sports stars, sport itself, money, sex, possessions, famous people, TV series, famous movie trilogies, tech security. We even have a show called Idols <laughs> that a lot of people leave church early for to go and see who wins. The point is this, whatever the focal point of your life is becomes your God and the thing that you worship. We're created to worship and if we don't worship God, we will worship something. And remember what God said in Exodus chapter 20, verse 35, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We don't have actual shrines, like I said, but these things, sport and, and TV and movie stars and our possessions and, and, and my desire to be secure, they consume our hearts, they occupy our hearts, they dominate our schedules, influence the way we spend our finances, prevail in our words and the things we talk about. We're driven by them, our hearts break when we don't have them, we'll do anything to get them. And yet somehow we've made ourselves believe that we don't worship idols. Such things become the objects of our devotion. And I love this quote. I don't know who said it, but it's not mine. But I agree with it. 
to the fact that we are not people of undivided adoration and unceasing praise when it comes to God does not mean we are not people of undivided adoration and unceasing praise. In other words, we are people who are going to give our undivided adoration and unceasing praise to something, and if it's not God, it's an idol. This provokes the wrath and the fury of God. You suppress the truth, you end up in idol worship. You, you, you fail to honor him and to be grateful to him for what he's done, and you make yourself the Lord of your own destiny and worship something else. What Paul then goes on to mention next, we don't have time to dig into, but it's stuff that angers God as well, but essentially he lists it as a list of consequences for suppressing the truth of God and turning yourself over to an idol. And that's why it says the wrath of God is being poured out because what God hands us over to functions in and of itself as a judgment. You speak to anybody caught in any sin, eventually it breaks them down and kills them from the inside out. You're left like an empty shell. If you've been around this church for a long time, you'll know I shared my testimony of when I fell into sin even as a Christian. And the months and the days that I spent with that sin on my shoulder ate away at me. David says in the Psalms, it's like my bones were wasting away. But God's wrath is also being stored up and is going to be released one day. But here's what Paul says, the consequences of suppressing the truth and making an idol for yourself that is not God. It says, therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Friends, there's going to come a time where you pursue your sinful suppressing of the truth, and the world suppresses the truth for enough time, and, and long enough time, and you worship something that's not God for long enough time, God's going to say, okay. Okay. Have it your way. It says this, and God gave them over to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Even women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also became abandoned, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received themselves a due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, as God gave them over to their depraved mind, they became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And so far, you might go, well, I'm sort of free from this list. They're full of envy. You ever envied somebody's possessions? Full of murder. You ever, like Jesus said, look at somebody with anger, you've committed murder in your heart? Strife, deceit. You ever lied to anybody? Malice. Ever done something just because it was spiteful and ugly to get somebody back? They are gossips. Ever gossip about somebody? Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Teenagers, check this one out. They disobey their parents. Paul puts that in there for a reason. He's not saying that disobeying your parents is the same as murdering somebody physically, but he's saying it's a sin nonetheless. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. In other words, don't be shocked when a culture that suppresses the truth of God and makes for itself its own idols descends into absolute anarchy and chaos and depravity. Don't be shocked. Don't throw your hands up and go, I don't understand why this is happening when you kick God out of your schools. Don't go, oh, I don't understand why this is happening to my family when God is not part of your family. Or why this is happening to society. We're supposed to be civilized. When you reject the truth of God, when you suppress the truth of God and you worship yourself or something else, 
the natural progression is to descend into depravity and insanity. That's the natural flow. Don't be shocked and don't be surprised when people start to lose their minds because they've rejected God. But the scary thing is this, where every single one of us is guilty. In some way or another, we're implicated or included in this list that Paul gives. And these things invoke and provoke and stir up the wrath of God. And apart from being in Jesus, here's the message we so seldom want to give to people. Apart from repenting of this stuff and being in Jesus and living obediently to Jesus, you're going to hell because of these things. Even if it's just one. Even if it's just one thing. And Paul says this, he says this is the third thing that really, really angers God. And it's almost like the bottom rung. This is, you don't get lower than this. Not only do people continue to practice these things, he says, the very things that they know God says will lead to death, but they also approve of those who practice them. A rejoicing in and approving of sin is one of the things that angers the heart of God. In other words, sin reaches its depths when sinners revel in their sin and they also clap their hands when others partake in the same thing and they encourage them to go on with it. Think about that scripture where Jesus says, if one of you causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and chucked into the depths of the ocean. I don't know if you've ever contemplated what Jesus was saying there. Can you imagine having a millstone, a big block of concrete or a big block of stone that they would grind um, corn on, maize on, tied around your neck and then chucked off a boat into the middle of the ocean. And if you just process that, it is horrific. Jesus says it would be better for you that that happened to you than if you cause somebody to, to, to stray from God and one day you stand before God because of that and not be freed from that. It would be better for you to be chucked into the ocean with a millstone around your neck. I was listening to the pastor, a pastor preaching the other day, and he said this, that as a society, we have become very proud of what we should be totally ashamed of. Because as a church, we've become so ashamed of what we should be extremely proud of. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. Not because I think there aren't Christians who stand up and step out and speak up for the gospel and the truth of Jesus. And not because I think we're totally to blame or individually to blame for someone else's sin and the destruction of society. But because we actually have been as a church and as Christians silenced by culture. We have been. We're too scared to speak out. We're too scared to say, I believe what God says about this because we're going to be called intolerant. We're going to be called haters of people. We're too scared to be labeled like that, and so we've become silent. And I think our culture wholeheartedly celebrates stuff that so causes grief to the heart of God. Abortion policies. Think about what's happening in New York and Illinois and places like that. Those are the only places. Just because they've legalized it doesn't mean it's not celebrated and embraced by culture as an okay thing. Pornography, we have things like the sexpo. We embrace, we embrace this idea of sex outside of marriage and we celebrate it. Companies use it to advertise with. One of the most powerful advertising things you can do is use sex to advertise your product. 
Online companies I've heard about, you may have heard about them, have this like sickened me that there are companies that's sole purpose, the reason they exist is to help people have affairs. You can sign up and, and, and connect with a company who will sneaky, sneaky puff at it behind your spouse's back, hook you up with somebody else, and they will cover your tracks for you. This. We have celebrations like gender fluidity, celebrations and marches. Gay pride, the ousting of biblical principles and teaching from schools and institutions of higher learning. We celebrate those things. And when I come to God's word, I can't help but see that those things break the heart of God. And I think we've lost the voice somewhat as Christians because we've overreacted sometimes and we've gone witch hunting and we've called things out in a way that we shouldn't have called them out. And people, instead of receiving the heart of God, receive judgments because of the way we've done it. I think we're all guilty, every single one of us. And I think the heart of God and the compassion of God and the love of God, like Paul says, needs to compel us to preach the truth, not because we hate people, but because we're so desperate for them to get the heart of God. And this idea that the wrath of God is coming. In other words, I think we live in a society and a generation where there's no fear of God, just mockery and scorn. There's no concern for the coming wrath of God, just a blissful, arrogant, ignorant plunging into depravity. Isaiah says this, I'm coming to an end, I promise. Isaiah says this, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who put darkness for light. Woe to those who put light for darkness. Woe to those who put bitter for sweet, and woe to those who put sweet for bitter. You know why Isaiah, writing 700 years before Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, says woe to those who do that? Because because of those things, it marks in you and it's plain for all to see that before God you've reached a level of depravity that angers God. And because of that, the wrath of God is coming and is being outworked and outpoured in this world today. Hebrews 10.31 says this, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. One of the reasons I think Christians so ignore this part of the gospel and reject the idea of God's wrath is due to an incomplete and insufficient view of Jesus. We've all heard gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We've all heard the stories about the lamb and the comforter and our friend. We've all heard the stories about him being our father and our intercessor. And I say yes and amen is every single one of those things in my life. But he is also the lion of Judah. He is also Jesus the warrior. He is also Jesus the captain of heaven's armies. He is Jesus one day who will outwork the wrath of God on an unsaved humanity. Have you ever read Revelation 19.11? It's speaking about Jesus and here's John's revelation of the risen king. 
Here's what he says. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. His name that he has written on him, no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you worship that Jesus? Because that's who Jesus is. That's who he always was and always will be. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Yes, he loves you. That's why his love and sacrifice on the cross is so deeply appreciated. Because he's not some marshmallow savior. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has said this stuff will lead to eternal death. And because of me, you can have life, but it needs to be through me. And you need to repent of your sin. We don't tell people that because we're too scared to be called intolerant. We're too scared to be ousted and, and, and told to get lost. We're too scared that this is just something I believe. If the gospel is in you, you know that you were saved. The day I got saved, I was terrified of God. I knew I was going to hell if I died that day. I knew it. And in his grace, God came through. And because of the fear of God that I experienced and the coming wrath of God I knew was coming, his love was so overwhelmingly appreciated. And today he's my father and my loving caretaker, but he's like a lion in Aslan. He's awesome and you can be around him, but around him you're always just a little bit on edge because this is the king of glory. If all we had were these verses, it would be a very sad situation. But we don't just have these verses. Paul goes on later on in Romans to unpack the other side of the gospel that we really hammer on. And I think it's good that Jesus Christ came to die for the ungodly. That because of Jesus, we have life. Because of Jesus, we have freedom. God's proved that he loves us by giving us his righteousness. And it's there for all of those to take by faith in Jesus Christ. You don't earn this. God just gives it to you. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you repented of your sin? Do you believe that the coming wrath of God is coming? Do you believe the scriptures when it says these things will land you in eternal hell? Have you, have you repented of them and do you go, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Get this stuff out of my life. Out here this morning, out here, brother, shared a picture of, of, of the Holy Spirit just blowing nonsense away out of people's lives. And today you might not know it's Sunday Pentecost, Pentecost Sunday. And I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would come and just blow the chaff out of our hearts. That we'd repent before the living God. Every single one of us, saved or not saved, every day, Christians, we walk working out our salvation with fear and trembling because we serve a living God. I want to be able to pray for you and go, come to know Jesus tonight. I also want to pray and just ask that the, that the God of the heavens and the earth would instill in us a fear of God again. Once I've done that, I'm going to hand over to Mark. Mark, you just can come and share and tell us what's happening tonight. Let's pray together.
Lord, Father, I just want to pray for your wisdom and for your grace. Lord, I pray for people to respond tonight to your call to repentance, to your, to your call to, to humility and to lay down the idol of self and to worship you. God, to embrace truth where we've suppressed it. If there are people in this place tonight, I, just, I feel from the Lord to just share this. If you're in a place where you're feeling condemned and Christians haven't really done a good job of letting you know who God is, what's happening and what you need to do to know him. And God wants you to know tonight that everything that's been shared about his wrath is true, but also the other stuff you've heard about his love is true. And he'll accept you and love you because of Jesus. And tonight, he will do that. If you would just bow down and repent and accept Jesus Christ by faith, you will be restored. If you choose to walk with him as your Lord, he'll empower you by the Spirit. He will pour his Spirit into you and you'll become a new creation. The old will be gone, the new will come. It will not always be easy, but God will be with you every single step of the way. That's what he did for us. And I pray that if that's you tonight, that you come and chat to me, one of the pastors would love to introduce you to Jesus. And if as Christians, you're sitting here tonight, you're just going, God, there's so much stuff that I've messed up in and messed up with. God's grace and his mercy are new every morning. God's word says, and we can come to our loving Father. We can come to our God and go, God, we need you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, as we do that and as we bring ourselves before you, may the conviction of the Lord sit on us. And, and may the fear of God again overwhelm us. And may we start to live deeply appreciative lives, always aware that we're loved by the King of glory. Holy Spirit, come and do that work. Only you can do that. So come and make your word grow and make it fruitful. In Jesus' name, amen. Note, 